0: gentlemen uh,
1: can i please have your attention Daniel <laughs>
0: greetings dear listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch dispatch media come on by uh check out our wares and maybe become uh a paid member of the community um we would love to have you uh And, um, we're really firing on all cylinders these days, despite it being the dog days of summer. So, um, please come on by. All right. So, um, this is, this is a very depressing time in America. I think, uh, I don't need to expand too much on that, but I will anyway, because we're going to do a whole podcast on it. And, um, I think one, we, I I decided that we're going to record that we're recording this on Monday morning instead of the usual Tuesday um in part because i gotta travel and in part because i just wanted to get stuff off my chest on this and um and i thought no better there'd be really no better guest um uh on here for for this talk for talk about afghanistan and how we screwed it up uh then my friend eli lake from bloomberg bloomberg opinion he has been uh aggressively correct about all of this stuff for quite a while and um And I think he's one of the few people out there who's affirmatively angrier about all of it than I am. So uh, Eli, welcome back to The Remnant.
1: Thanks for having me. And it is a dark day or a dark week.
0: Um, So I actually want to begin in a weird, weird way because, you know, when people, by the time people listen to this, more stuff will have happened and, um, and there's a lot of finger pointing and, and, and blame assigning going on and, and we'll do some of that for sure, but I had this weird idea. You wrote a very interesting review of uh, our friend Jonathan Roush's book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, um, in which he, I think, scores a lot of fair points about a lot of people, about a lot of constituencies in American culture and the sort of epistemic crisis. And we talk a lot about that on this podcast um, with, with Jonathan. People can go back and listen to that. But you had a... You had, I think, a tough but fair pointed criticism of it, and, I, I, and I'll let you explain it, and then I have a theory about how it ties into what's going on in Afghanistan.
1: Um, so, thank you. Uh, so I, before I start, I want to say that it's a good book, and you should read it, even though I believe it has a very bad chapter in it. Um, but it's, Jonathan Rauch has done a lot of work, uh, especially for listeners of this podcast, in tracing the history from Plato and Socrates to the through the Enlightenment of how we've got to this, but is not a natural state of affairs where we basically have a system for turning disagreements into knowledge, where we understand that in order for something to be true, we have to test its fallibility, and um, he has, I think, written, you know one of the most persuasive sort of like chapter-length arguments against cancel culture. Um, I think it's filled with a lot of interesting insights that in the end, he's he's not entirely pessimistic about things. My problem with it is that he presents um, the gatekeepers of knowledge, such as the mainstream media or the FBI, uh, the CDC, as victims of uh, trolls, and people who are deliberately just seeking to discredit them by kind of get coming at, uh, by putting out a fire hose of falsehood. And there is truth to the fact that there are both bad state actors and bad individual domestic political actors like Donald Trump that do engage in a kind of uh, epistemic sociopathy, which is to just lie at a rate that is more than normal politicians. But it doesn't excuse the. Deceptions and epistemic failures of the institutions themselves that he is attacking. And I, one of the reasons I like your politics, Jonah, is because I think of it as a rejection of both. And that's what I think we need, because I think that Roush's book is a really important book to try to bring a kind of community of people together to save this constitution of knowledge. But you have to also uh, be as vigilant and, um, critical of people like James Comey, uh, or MSNBC as you do about, you know, the OAN network and Donald Trump or, and Russian troll farms.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think you can even take it at least one step further in that if you control the commanding heights of the culture, if you claim to be the, the institutions of epistemic legitimacy, right you these are the you know as uh um you know these are the institutions that have the good housekeeping seal of approval that decide whether or not society should take something as true you have a greater obligation than some network like OAN to actually do your homework right and make sure you get it right and admit when you get it wrong and so i mean i think i think the point you make i mean one of the things i hate about both sidesism is that it assumes a symmetry right i mean when people say you know you know oh well you know look what fox does you know that shows that you know there's conservative media bias too okay i have problems with some of the things fox does i think i'm pretty clear on that but fox does not equal abc nbc cbs pbs npr new york times washington post i mean there is there is a there's a asymmetry to the, the, the battle space in a way, and to justify what the acknowledged elites of, of epistemic, you know, uh, legitimacy are don't can, only, can live down to the standards of these places that define themselves in opposition to them is a bad idea and, and, and requires a, a sort of a rigorous personal inventory that, that, that I think a lot of these institutions don't do.
1: And I, and I should add one thing that I think that there, that we saw, and I don't think, I'm not saying that there was a conspiracy here, but there was a kind of almost collective decision made after Trump won in 2016, that the old rules could not apply, that y- there needed to be resistance to, uh, this malevolent force. I was always dubious that I always worried that this would end up, uh, Almost kind of not only continuing this cycle, but also create problems to solve to solve other problems. But it's not effective either because the credibility that you need um, is squandered. So you know the idea that um, you know leading you know you're leading this charge against Trump, and therefore it's okay to shade the truth about um, you know Russia Gate or to you know not acknowledge that um, this piece of opposition research, had made its way into the FBI and used to defraud the secret surveillance court, which I think is a huge problem, and to sort of minimize those things because, you know, it, we had to do something about Trump, uh, ends up only, only, only um, discrediting the institutions themselves, which we need to survive. So I'm coming at this as somebody who's basically on Rauch's side, that we do need these institutions and gatekeepers, that we can't just have, we, it, w- it would be terrible, America will fall apart if we, if we succumb to a truth crisis where we just have different tribes talking to each other. That's a civil war. So um, so, I, I, you know, I, so I, say, I say this, I think it was a harsh, it was, it was at times pretty harsh, the review, but I, I say this as somebody who's kind of like on his side and wants to be part of that project.
0: Yeah. And and I think we should just for clarity's sake, we can take it out of the pro-Trump, anti-Trump context as well. I mean, the, you know, I mean, and some of, you know, some of this epistemic crisis stuff, which is a really fancy way of often saying uh, groupthink, right? You know, um, you see it all the time. I mean, um, you see it. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of examples. The Asian hate crime you know wave that we saw because of the shooting in georgia and it turned out it really wasn't an asian hate crime and um and most of the anti-asian hate crimes were in fact are are, are in fact done by african americans in, uh, in in places like oakland but the media was just sort of waiting for an example to w- that confirmed their biases and so they ran with that uh you know m- one of my favorites is the reaction to hurricane katrina back in the day where oh i remember I think, that enormous amount of awards were given by journalists to other journalists for getting the story completely wrong um and um I will never get over the fact that Eugene Robinson uh not, I apologize not Eugene Robinson who's the guy who was the head of the trans Africa thing uh, he wrote for the daily Beast not Daily Beast the Huffington Post back then and um I'll come up with his name in a minute but he was a big part of the anti-apartheid movement you know anyway he was a regular contributor over there and he wrote that he's hearing reports that African-Americans in New Orleans are now uh, eating human bodies that have washed ashore because there's no food. And I always was like, what editor thought it was okay to suggest that African-Americans and only African-Americans within 24 hours of being cut off from the Kroger now feast on the flesh of the dead, you know? and, and, and but there's this sort of, group thing kind of thing that anything that indicted George W. Bush was outrageous and we saw plenty of this kind of stuff on the right about Obama um and uh anyway the reason why I wanted to start with this one is I thought it was a worthwhile piece i'm a huge fan of jonathan's too and um but i think you made a a good point i kind of felt a little ashamed that i didn't press him on this when i had him on the podcast so i figured we should get that into the record but also it seems to me that If we want, you know, we can talk about epistemic crises that uh, make us really mad, but really don't matter except on Twitter. And then we can talk about this mother of all screw ups in Afghanistan, which seems to me to validate, you know, the core most significant part of your point, which is that these institutions that are literally entrusted, not These are not media institutions. These are institutions that are entrusted with the security of the United States of America, the intelligence community, the National Security Council, the military, um, and also parts of the media that are complicit in this. They got all of this so spectacularly wrong that we, you know, it was like, you know, there are all these reports now saying that Biden said in meetings, the one thing we got to avoid is a Saigon moment. We can't have images like we had in Saigon. And you you feel like Ron Howard should narrate, and then they had their Saigon moment because this is, in some ways, I would argue, worse than the Saigon moment. I think it so. Is. So tell first of all, just you know, tell us your know, give us a lay of the land of what's going on here, and um, and and where do you see ha- the most important part of how we got here in terms of this this failure of just simply understanding what was in fact going on and going to happen.
1: Well, I, I mean, I. I would start with um some of the initial opposition in the two thousands to to America's presence in Afghanistan and Iraq in just the sense that there was a kind of moral critique that America was an occupying force in two countries where they had where there was a very deliberate and hard fought policy to establish constitutions and uh governments with elections, however flawed they are, that have ultimately led to these elected governments. Uh, Again, every Afghan election has had serious allegations of fraud, and I'm not trying to downplay that. And there is corruption, and there's a lot of other major problems. But we were there at the request of these governments, Um, and that that is very different than an occupation. So that was a kind of category error. It was a lazy bit of thinking that has sort of stayed, and you see it today with, you know, we we had to end the 20-year occupation. It was not a 20-year occupation. It was maybe, I think, a one-year occupation and then a 19-year project, a nation-building project. And and, and people can disagree over whether the United States has the capability or should engage in nation-building, but nonetheless, there we were, and because there was an emphasis on, admittedly, the mistakes that cost human lives, droning wedding parties, and things like that, and this drumbeat that sort of said that the U.S. Was mor- presence was morally illegitimate in Afghanistan, there was almost we had memory hold; we'd forgotten what the U.S. replaced or what had replaced the Taliban, and we ne- we we we, we seem to sort of lose touch with just how evil it is. It was sort of, sort of, sort of a side note, and and, um, the failure to grapple with the distinction, and I say this, said this a lot on Twitter, but foreign policy is never a choice between good and bad policies. It's almost always a choice between bad and horrible policies. And so we had a bad situation. It was a stalemate. We had, you know, there are plenty of fair criticisms of the Afghan military, although some of these things that what the Biden administration is now saying is just nonsense. They fought they died at much higher rates than the U.S fighting a common enemy. but nonetheless, all fine. but when you look at it and you say, we had 2,500 troops, General Lloyd Austin and um, you know so Secretary of Defense Austin and General Miley had said in March, they pleaded with, with Biden, why don't you leave about?" between 3,000 and 4,500. That's according to David Sanger's piece from yesterday. And then we'll try to still pursue these negotiations. And Biden wouldn't listen to them. He wouldn't. So when people say that there was an intelligence failure, in a sense, there was an intelligence failure and that nobody predicted that the Taliban would succeed as quickly as they have. In another sense, it really wasn't an intelligence failure. It was a leadership failure. Joe Biden did not listen to his generals. He did not listen to his secretary of Defense. He didn't listen to the people who were telling him that if you do this, the Taliban are going to take over. And I think that, uh, you know, that is a failure on him and his senior advisors that have either forgotten or were okay with uh, the Taliban coming back into power, not just from a humanitarian perspective, although that's, I think, very important. And your great G-file on honor gets to a lot of this. But just from a basic kind of counterterrorism perspective, just because we're facing great power threats and COVID and cyber threats and space and all of these other things, which are true, doesn't mean that there isn't a problem with momentum for, you know, Islamic fascists to uh, launch terror attacks against our allies or ourselves and then having another safe haven in Afghanistan. That's also a problem. At one point in July, I believe Trump's, I mean, I'm sorry, Biden said that he thought our stature in the world would increase. Anthony Blinken was saying that our adversaries want us nothing more than for us to stay in Afghanistan without seeming to understand what an utter humiliation this is and the reverberations with our other allies in how provocative this will be to the Iranians and to the Chinese. It's just uh, astounding. All of these consequences, when the alternative was an unsatisfying stalemate with a minimal American footprint, um, I can't get my head around it. I cannot, and and, and I will never believe again anybody who tells me, uh, you know, this Biden line about how the adults are back, American leadership is back, we want an, oh, a global democratic renewal. That is all happy talk and nonsense, and I won't. I won't
0: have it so i mean help me out with some of the chronology stuff here um let me put it this way um so i know that you think this was inevitable whenever we left argument is nonsense and you can address that but um uh, and i agree with you um but so one of the one of the things i keep reading which i still don't think has gotten enough attention is that We trained the Afghan army to fight according to a model where we were helping them out, where we were providing logistics, intelligence, uh, you know, various air support, uh, all resupply kind of things, all that kind of stuff. And when Biden issued his order, all that stopped. And so this military hadn't trained as a standalone military without being without the aid and support of the U.S. military. Why was that? And why? And why, why? Why couldn't someone have said to Biden, "Hey, wait a second. You know, you keep saying that they got three hundred thousand people. We didn't train them to fight as a standalone independent army with three hundred thousand soldiers. We trained them to fight as a force multiplier for us. And if we stop supplying them, they're going to fall apart. What do I have that right? And and let me where was the decision? Let me sharpen, where, where let the sh- let me sharpen
1: your point. That the, the great advantage that the Afghan security forces had over the taliban was air power um the helicopter the taliban doesn't have helicopters they don't have
0: any
1: uh, fighter they don't have they don't have (laughs) the ability to uh you know so the air power advantage is very serious when biden ordered the withdrawal along with that withdrawal were both the maintenance crews the contractors that keep the afghan air force flying and for that matter our air force uh, that's there but also the people who are sometimes called spotters, which are special operators that go out with Afghan units and then paint the target so that there can be a precision strike. Um, one of the ironies from is that, as the left would say, that you know the, the drone warfare in Afghanistan is immoral and it kills all these civilians. If there is a terrorist threat in Afghanistan now, and the U.S. has to take some kind of action, and it'll probably be some kind of air power, those strikes will be far less precise. There will be far greater likelihood that civilians will be killed and that we won't get the actual targets. And that's another reason why it was such an advantage at the point that we were at where we had, you know, I mean, listen, whether it's 2,500 or 5,000, that's a very small footprint. It's not the same as 100,000 or 150,000 at the height of the war. The anti-war crowd had been making an argument that was 10 years out of date, in my view. Um, And they weren't addressing that particular reality. So you're right that when you take that away and you do so when there was so much confusion, because remember, when Biden comes in, the line was not we're following Trump's policy. He made this bad, you know, this deal with the Taliban. It was we're going to review Afghan policy and figure out, you know, what to do next. Now, we knew because Biden had campaigned on ending the war um, that this was a possibility. And we know that privately he has, you know, when he was vice president, he was for a much smaller footprint, but there was still this review process. And we know that his best advisors were telling him to leave, you know, pretty much the status quo and he ignored them. So again, it's not fair entirely to sort of say, well, you know, this proved how hollow the Afghan military was. Well, the Afghan military did have many problems. It was corrupt. There were the equipment wasn't getting to the people on the front lines. All that's true. But it's also true that we 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 pulled the rug out from under them.
0: So, but who, wh- you know, when was the decision made that, I mean, if, if Trump announced this policy, you know, what, in 2017, um, something like that? No, no,
1: he announced it in 2019. Well, he announced, yeah, he announced, I guess, the, yeah, the negotiations in 2019 and they concluded in 2020.
0: Okay, so... Forget political leadership for a second, right? Why isn't someone at the Pentagon, some career general guy saying, hey, look, the writing's on the wall. We'll keep doing this argument about how we need to have a token force there. It worked with Trump. Maybe we can convince Biden. But in the meantime, shouldn't we start helping train this army to be able to function once we leave? Because as it stands right now, it's sort of like, it's like literally pulling the plug on the army. It ceases to function as a as a serious fighting force the second we leave. It's like pulling out the battery of the thing. And we spend an enormous amount of money and time in the U.S. military thinking about contingencies. Where where? Why is it, why is it falling to me to ask this question about why? I mean, if, if you know that we're going to pull out or if you think, yeah, think it, no, we don't know that we're going to pull out. You think there's a reasonable possibility that we are going to pull out, and when political decisions are made, they're the, they're made quickly. I mean, there's a, it's sort of like a long wait, and then they happen quickly. Um, we should be ready, and yet, and you, and also, why wouldn't the fact that this current or- organization of the of the Afghan military, there must have been some, you know. Pentagon guy or Milly, or, 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 you know, the sec, sec def, who could say, hey, look, you know, Mr. President, doing this right now at the beginning of the fighting season is a bad idea, particularly because this army doesn't know how to fight on its own. How come that how come that argument didn't bubble up until after it was too late for it to bubble up?
1: I think there's a couple answers to the question. I mean, the first that you have to just deal with is that under Trump, the civil military relationship was severely strained. There were plenty of times when, for lack of a better... I don't like the term deep state, and I don't use it, but the national security state undermined Trump's stated policies, and he was very frustrated. There's a quote in Woodward's book um, from Jared Kushner that says, when we came in, the career government was 80% against us, and now it's only like 30%, something like that. But think about that, that you, you... you know, that that is a breakdown and part of what we were talking about earlier. So I think that there was a sense that there was this Trump aberration. He pursued bad ideas policy. The adults were coming back. Biden could be talked out of it. So that's one. Uh, the second point is that the Taliban had not been living up to the agreement. And the most important part of that agreement, which is that they would keep the ta- the Al-Qaeda out of their territory uh, was no longer true, and that was supported not just by the U.S. government, but the UN. I think put out a report to those, to that effect. So there, I think, was a sense that um, the Taliban isn't living up to their their agreement. Why are we going to, you know, then live up to ours? Um, but you're right. Nonetheless, there should have been really starting, you know, at the end of Obama because Obama wanted to get out too. There should have been planning, uh, you know, for the last five or six years to make the, uh, Afghan military more, uh, you know, kind of function on their own. And like, I don't think anybody really did this. And that is, that's a failure of the military. That's a failure of the Pentagon as much as the political leadership.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just, it just sort of feels like, um, I mean, this, this is sort of why I wanted to start with, with, with the stuff about the epistemic stuff is that it feel, and this is something I've been hammering in, in my writing of late is so much of our politics is weighed down by the fact that people are addicted to narratives rather than like facts on the ground. And and this is as much as a problem with the reality-based community as it is with MAGA world and everybody else. It's that, you know, th- there's a big theme in my book is that people are following politics as a form of entertainment. When you follow things as entertainment, you get on a permission structure, you get on a slippery slope that says, the story needs to go this way and we'll just make the facts fit it. And so like, it was it was very disappointing. Like I now... You know, you know how there are certain phrases that you you get so angry about, you hear them all, whenever they slip around, you know, mainstream media folks. I mean, Chuck Todd yesterday, I meet the press, you know, they're 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 simply calling Afghanistan a forever war as if this is a non loaded, non tendentious, non narrative driven phrase. And you just simply, we know enough about how brains work that, you know, you can lead, you can nudge people to certain conclusions. And if you call Afghanistan a forever war, you are automatically buying on the cheap opposition to, you know, staying there because who wants a forever war? And, um, and that's a narrative trading.
1: What was a hard war in 2003 or the uh, Obama surge, where you had people all over the country that were basically manning like traffic stops and, you know, they had to deal with IEDs and all these terrible things for what the mission was now, which is radically different. And, you know, all of it gets subsumed under forever war because you're right. That was the narrative and they stuck to it. And that narrative starts under George W. Bush among, you know, the net roots is what they were called back then. And it ha- and and that. That you know they haven't changed. They haven't changed despite what the facts changing. You know, I mean.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I, again, so I, back to the chronology stuff. One of my great frustrations, other than this "forever war" phrase, which you know, again, if 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 what we were doing in Afghanistan in in 2020 constituted a forever war, then so did what we've been doing in the Sinai Peninsula and and a whole bunch of places. Uh, it was a little bit, it was, it was more
1: perilous than that. There was more fighting than that. Fair, I mean, that that's, but, but that's, a, I see your point that like, you know, if we're if Troops we're in, in Korea, harm's way.
0: I mean, look, it was, it was an overseas counterterrorism operation writ large. It was what we were doing in 2020, you know, and, um, but, uh, I hear constantly from the sort of the, 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 the right non-interventionists or right isolationists, whatever label you want to put on them. Um, the ones who, who we say forever war all the time is like, the lesson of this is that this proves we should only get engaged when it reflects our vital national security interests, blah, 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 blah. And as you know, I have a big problem with the phrase vital national security interests because that's always in the eye of the beholder. It's always subject to an argument and a debate and it's a contentious thing, but, even so, this like you can make that argument about Iraq, you know, th- at least the way that they mean it, because that was much more of a war of choice. You can even make that argument about Vietnam, which was much more of a war of choice. But the invasion of Afghanistan was one of the most clear cut military, you know ex- you know ev- interventions morally and politically of the last hundred years. I mean, not maybe only Pearl Harbor competes with it. It passed, the resolution for enduring freedom passed 98 to zero in the Senate and 420 to one. I just watched a video put out by Human Rights Watch about how on Saturday Night Live, they did a skit where they're all singing and dancing about the fall of the Taliban. It was the good war. And it was in everybody's definition of a vital national security interest to respond after 9-11. And so like, it's amazing to me how many people borrowed talking points from the Iraq war. And will come at me and say, "Oh, but you're one of the you're one of the ones who you know said we should get in there in the first place." And it's like, "What are you talking about? Everyone said that. I mean, and we should have. It was the right decision." But I, so, like, I, I, when did was, it? Yeah, I'll share. When this did it become a war of choice instead of an you know a, a self defense?
1: Just to to, to 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 emphasize your point um, on Twitter uh, over the weekend, uh, Malcolm Nance, who uh, to use uh, Jonathan Roush's locution, is an epistemic sociopath made a similar argument. And this is somebody who, you know, is sort of fatted now on the left as one of these major national security. He's written all these books. He was a big Trump-Russia fabulist. Um, and he was saying the same thing. And like, I had whiplash. I was like, um, I'm sorry, but when you were making all these arguments about how, you know, Trump was dishonoring America because he was a tool of the Russians, you were kind of on team deep state, um, And here you are trying to sort of pose as like, you know, all these neocons got us into Afghanistan, which is just historical nonsense. It's like just crazy that people are saying that. And I think you're right. It is this triumph of a narrative that people would like to say that, like, you know, we never had any vital interest. It's almost like they're airbrushing out 9-11 and how that happened. Um, You know, I my hope is that when. That will that this will be a kind of wake up call for a lot of Americans to sort of say, well, wait a second, you know, we didn't we didn't sign up for this. This is uh, and that and that this kind of humiliation doesn't go over well. Um, that may begin to write our politics again, but I'm, you know, I, I Jonah, I'm despondent. Um, I really don't think that anyone, including President Biden, understands the ramifications of what we just did not just for the girls schools well that is terrible enough but uh you know what what is this what did people in taiwan and israel what what are they thinking right now do you think that that we're going to come to their i and and i just i just don't know i mean it's it's uh it's really, uh, it's, just, it's, beyond dispiriting. I was going to say, I mean, that's too, too mild a word for it. Um, and I wonder if we are still the same kind of superpower that we've been since world war two. Uh, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I should say we are again, in a
1: sense, like we, our economy, our military size and everything like that, but I'm saying is that, is it the same thing? Do we have the same ability to do what we have taken for granted in, as, you know, in American statecraft. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't, and I kind of fear the answer to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, just to underscore the point, um, one of the Chinese backed, you know, fake real newspapers was tweeting this morning about how the Afghan debacle shows that America doesn't have the ability. If it can't, if it can't win in this minor field, how's it going to like, you know, come to the aid of real country. They're stirring the pot and saber rattling already. And, and as a matter of real I don't blame them. I mean, that's what, you know, the Chinese should do just in a sort of Aesopian way. But th- I mean, th- this is the thing that gets me just so livid about all of this is, I mean, other than the, just the objective tragedy of it all is that the people defending this course of action are the ones claiming to be the realists. When as a matter of actual realism, this is so disastrous for us standing in the world. Um, And, and, you know, and, and, you know, and for Biden's presidency too, I mean, I mean, it's, but that who cares about Biden's presidency um, in the big picture, but like, I don't know that I would trust America as an ally. Cause now we know that this is a bipartisan thing, right? This is over two administrations, it's really over four administrations, well, three administrations, um, that America just doesn't have the stick to and will, nor does it have the logistical and technical ability to do, to carry out the missions that it sets itself. And, you know, if I were, I mean, I don't know where, I don't, you know, Taiwan can't really go to anybody for help at this point, but like, um, if I were some other, you know, country looking to, you know, if I were Israel, I was like, you know, I got to start hedging a little bit more, um, about, where my, you know, security lies. And it's, 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 it's incredibly depressing and, and, and stupid. And I think it's just a spectacular example of how narrative drives people to make bad decisions. I mean, the idea that Joe Biden wanted to celebrate the, the complete withdrawal by nine 11 tells you how much narrative and dumb press releases was driving his thinking on this stuff.
1: Well, I posed this question on Twitter and I'll pose it to you, but, uh, you know, we think of the worst foreign policy moments of Trump's administration. I would say it's the Helsinki conference with Putin and then betraying the Kurds by tweet. Uh, those were terrible. I I furiously raged my columns about it. Um, I, I don't think there's any really question at this point. What Biden's done right with his Afghanistan withdrawal, the way he did it, is worse.
0: Absolutely. No, I, 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 I don't. I have no problem admitting that whatsoever. So then I posed um, this
1: question: that all these Democrats who, kind of, for the Trump years, posed as tough-minded national security hawks, and I agreed with their arguments about Russia, and I agreed with a lot of what they were saying about Trump. I mean, it, people can read a piece that I wrote um for the January or February issue of Commentary called "Framed and Guilty," which is my kind of final opus on Trump and Russia, where I really do blame a lot of things on Trump for, uh, you know, kind of enabling this Russian disinformation campaign by denying that they had any role in everything and stuff. And, you know, I'm kind of with them on a part of it. But where are they now? I mean, if you remember, when Trump was in Helsinki, the response was from people like John Brennan that Trump had committed treason uh, in that press conference, which I thought was too far i would not have used those words as a constitutional definition of it but where are these people now i mean chris murphy is telling us on twitter that there was no other option he was on a call that you know if we wanted to stay we'd have to put in several more thousand troops which is undermined by all this reporting that you know the secretary of defense or you know pleaded with them to keep a, a small kind of contingency force where are they and Uh, I just like, uh, where's the, and where is the accountability? Because, um, you know, I, I suppose it was a pretty convincing act during the Trump years. They were livid about the Russia bounty stories in Afghanistan. There was, remember the Atlantic piece about how Trump thought all these people were suckers and losers. Well, I'm sorry, but if Biden doesn't think it's worth defending an elected government, however flawed, that was able to make massive gains in female literacy and other things, then doesn't he also think our soldiers are suckers and losers? I know that's harsh, but that's the reality right now. And that's, I think, what we're dealing with. And I would hope that that kind of dissonance can maybe be the fodder for kind of a, maybe like a real renewal. But I have zero faith in this administration and I've known Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan. I admire them on a personal level. I think they're very intelligent people. But they own this, and I cannot, I will not be lectured by any of of that crowd anymore um, about, you know, as bad as Trump was, and I'm agreeing that there were a lot of disgraceful things that he did in foreign policy. I am not getting Trump off the hook, but if you cannot find your voice now, if you can't resign after this, then I just don't believe that you took those values and principles seriously.
0: Uh, I I am entirely with you. I mean, this is sort of like my point about a whole bunch of you know, stuff where I mean, this is one of my problems with with the, the 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 sort of dialectical nature of this is that when Trump violated norms out of ignorance and bluster and stupidity, um, it gave a permission structure to smart people who should know better to violate norms because they thought they were on the side of truth and light and justice and they were against Trump. And so therefore it was worth it. And then. The Trump side sees this and says, "See, they're all hypocrites. They claim to be believers in these things, but if it's against us, they can violate them too, and that gives them more." And you get a race to the bottom kind of thing. And you know, so like one of the things that just drives me nuts is is Biden's uh, 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 eviction moratorium stuff, where he just basically flatly says, "Yeah, it's unconstitutional," (laughs) you know, or at least that's the way most scholars see it, and that's the way our own administration lawyers saw it, but. Eh, I'll do it anyway. It'll buy me some time, you know, violating constitutional oaths, denying, you know, violating democratic norms, either it's bad or it's not bad. It can't be bad for one side and not the other side. And so I, I agree with you entirely on that. I guess part of my problem is, is that, you know, and I got into this fight with Hugh Hewitt over the weekend about this, where, um, I have no problem saying Biden owns this this is Biden's decision. He didn't, you know, he he rejected all sorts of other treaties and obligations that Trump went into um, when he got elected. He, you know, put his back in the Paris Accord, you know, the JCPO, all that kind of stuff. You know, you, you can go down a list of things of Trump policies he rejected or kept. He made the choice to keep the, the, the thrust of the Trump position about withdrawal. And then when it went badly, he... Claimed he had no choice but to do it when he obviously had a choice, that's all fine. My problem with Hughes' argument was that Trump didn't deserve any criticism for all of this. That 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 the decision to recognize the Taliban, to negotiate with the Taliban, um, to take the Taliban seriously when it said it would fight Al-Qaeda. Oh, unbelievable. Um, that was terrible too. And um, and now we're getting into this really, really dumb position where you know, you have the the sort of the, the pro-Trump people want to say this wouldn't have happened. And they, and they might be right. I mean, like, I don't think it would have happened this fast if Trump were in because Trump hates to look weak. Right. So well, there I would, would be at I least... make another
1: argument. If Trump was in power, there's a very good chance that the Pentagon would be more aggressively slow rolling him.
0: Right. So, so that was my real point is that yeah. the real defense of Trump is that he was he was too incompetent and too weak to stand up to the quote unquote deep state in a way that Biden with 40 years of experience, felt perfectly comfortable overruling them. That's not the defense that the Trump people want to offer, but I think it is actually closer to accurate about why this wouldn't have happened under Trump than because Trump had some grand plan to, you know, to do this the right way.
1: I mean, the only smidgen, I I, I should say, I 90% agree with what you've just said. The only point that is in Hewitt's favor on this is that we have to remember that, you know, Trump was such a mercurial president that this is the same guy who was like waiting by the phone for a phone call from Iranian President Rouhani, and then only a few months later, uh, you know, in one of I think the best moments of the Trump administration, uh, ordering the strike that killed Qasem Soleimani. The fact that he was capable of killing Qasem Soleimani was, I think, valuable in his negotiations with the Taliban, which beca- and it's va- it was valuable in terms of America in general because it showed that Trump was willing to do something that was risky, that a lot of his own people were, you know, saying there could be these massive consequences and things like that, but he would do it anyway. And that's why I think maybe there might be a smidgen of a point in the sense that uh, it's totally conceivable that instead of just sending 5,000 troops in to help with the evacuation that Trump decided after looking at all this, that he was, you know, just going to order massive saturation bombing of, Taliban strongholds and stuff, which I think would have been a deterrent, even though that's not, again, an endorsement of his leadership personality.
0: Yeah, no, look, I I think that is entirely fair. I, I, I think that's right. I think that I was talking to my wife about this, about like, you know, the one of the few things we know very explicitly about Trump is he does not look like to look like a sucker or weak. And Biden looks really weak and like a sucker this week. And Trump would have looked for perhaps even only symbolic, but symbolism matters a lot, um, ways to sort of slow the Taliban's role. But at the same time, the strategic goal was essentially the same, which is to get out and and the, the people like you and, you know, and other people I respect who understood this stuff, You I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't saying that if Trump got his way, Taliban would take over in a week. But you were saying if Trump got his way, likelihood of civil war is very high and likelihood that the Taliban ultimately wins the civil war is very high so you could still see the Taliban take over in a year right
1: they brought me in you know in the Trump administration
0: to try to sell me on this stuff
1: and i slammed it in my columns i said this is a huge mistake um the, I, it's something that's about to be published i think uh on monday on Barry Weiss's substack i i i blamed trump for all of the things that he did in terms of negotiating with the Taliban and uh beginning the process. The bottom line is that the end of his presidency, time basically ran out. He couldn't do the full withdrawal. And there was this contingency force that was there. And it was Biden who decided to bring them home regardless of the consequences. But he was getting the same briefings as everybody else. I mean, Trump was getting the same briefings as to say, Biden, you know, there was going to be a civil war. You know, we don't know, you know, we don't know how strong the how long the military will last and all this other stuff. I mean, he, he had the same information and it didn't matter. So you're right. Strategically, they sort of said this 20-year investment uh, th- that has led us to a stalemate um, is no longer worth it. And we're willing to accept the consequences of the Taliban taking over the country. And I just have to wonder whether all of the people who are in the, end, the endless war crowds Really fully understand exactly what that means. And if I could make a sort of separate point that, uh, or a kind of related point to this, there was something that Biden said that surfaced over the weekend when he was running for president. He was asked by um, Face the Nation, what, Will you bear some responsibility if, as president, you withdraw from Afghanistan and women's rights are demolished by the Taliban? And his answer was Are you telling me I need to go? and start a war with China because there are concentration camps for Uyghurs in Western China. Absolutely not. I bear zero responsibility. That's what he said when he was running for the presidency. Um, And that is morally illiterate. We are not, this is not about failing to go into Rwanda to prevent a genocide, which we had nothing, you know, which we had nothing to do with. This is doing something that is enabling an atrocity, And there's a huge difference that our actions, our small contingency of forces, if this was 200,000 American forces, there's a stronger argument that, okay, these are really bad consequences, but this is too high a price to pay. But does anybody with a straight face think 5,000 Americans or 2,500 Americans is too high a price to pay to prevent our mortal enemies from taking over a country, uh, imposing 8th century Sharia fascism? uh, demoralizing all of our allies and almost certainly providing a safe haven for international terrorist organizations. Does anyone think that that's not worth it? That, you know, 5,000 troops is too much. That's what we're talking about. And uh, for Biden to not even grasp the moral responsibility that America has to the other Afghans who are fighting alongside of us, who are relying on us, this very small force to basically keep it together and to just say, it's just like, hey, what do you want me to do? Intervene every time there's a bad thing that happens somewhere? Um, I mean, that's just damning. Uh, As I said, it's moral illiteracy.
0: I I, I could not agree more. Um, And the fact that he's not coming out and speaking. I mean, that he's staying cloistered away at camp. David is grotesque to me. I mean, I just, I, I yeah. don't get it. And I mean, you, I, see, you see all the, and, uh, there's
1: like, there's partisans like on Twitter who are, who are like trying to yell at people like Adam Kinzinger for pointing out like you're on vacation now. And they're like, Oh God, I, I thought he was on, you know? Yeah. It's terrible. Like he, he needs to address the nation and own this. Yeah.
0: Um, so, I mean, I, I could, I could wallow in rage about a lot of this stuff for a while longer, but what, um, what do you think the next six months looks like? I mean, like both in Afghanistan and sort of the consequences of all of this here at home.
1: Well, um, I'm watching Pakistan, uh, which is responsible for a lot of this problem. Um, but I mean, they,
0: they essentially just so listeners know they essentially created the Taliban, right? I they mean, absolutely created um, the
1: Taliban. Um, yeah. And and they managed the problem of introducing this poison of Islamic fascism in their country by exporting it into Afghanistan and trying, and as the Saudis did for many years with their Islamists, the Saudis also, you know, are responsible for building a lot of the mosques and schools that trained the Taliban in the 1990s. Um, and that the idea was, this is very bad for our society, but it's fine for our enemies. And... So will this come back now that the Taliban has this huge victory, and all of this momentum? Will this then start to destabilize a country with 140 or so nuclear weapons? That's a huge national security disaster looming. Um, and what will happen in that regard? Um, the I think images that we will see on cell phone videos that will get out of Afghanistan will shock the conscience of almost everyone. I would hope that uh, Democrat, human rights Democrats like Tom Malinowski and others who have really built their careers on fighting on for these kinds of issues will find their voice now, um, but uh, expect to be horrified more and more as these sort of stories come out, as we see the mass executions. Um, and I worry that this Surrender will be provocative to Iran. It will be provocative to Russia. It's not a coincidence that it was after Obama said he would and then pulled back from intervening in Syria that we saw the Russian invasion of uh, and annexation of Crimea and Ukraine. Uh, will we see more of that? Will this be provocative to China? Will they try something in Taiwan? Um, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm saying that 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 this kind of thing is. Really, really dangerous in terms of our adversaries, and that we've talked about already our allies and whether they will be starting to make kind of contingency plans. I do think that there that this is a time that there can be kind of skilled diplomacy that can mitigate some of that damage uh but it's a it is a Big challenge ahead, and it is more challenging because of this decision. And that, and it gets, gets me back to something that that Biden has said a couple times, and Blinken has also said as Secretary of State that this is actually like going to increase our stature, and that this is, you know, this is this is smart from a kind of you know our our farm our our statecraft perspective. This is a smart decision, and I I just find that I can't I, I can't believe that do they really believe that and. Uh, it's just amazing. That's horrible.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a weird irony here. I mean, it's a point, one of the points I was sort of hammering for a while, about all of this, but why I thought getting out was a bad decision was on the Biden administration's own terms. They said that they wanted to pivot to strategic competition with essentially great power rivalries, China, Russia, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> I get that. That's all fine. Um, having an Air Force base in the middle of all of these strategic competitors with listening posts and intelligence gathering operations seems to me the kind of thing you would want if you were pivoting to that kind of thing. And the weird irony of this is that by virtue of the way they've done this, they've made that great power competition that they wanted to pivot to vastly more intense and dangerous than it otherwise would have been. Not just because we lost the base, but because it's so provocative and destabilizing. Um, and invites, you know, people I mean, like what happened my, my wife constantly, you know, talks about and and, you know, my wife worked for John Ashcroft during the, you know, the first Bush administration and was deeply involved in all this stuff. The old Lawrence Wright Looming Tower argument used to sort of define smart understanding of how we got the war on terror. The idea that 20 years to the day, basically, after 9-11, they're going to fly the Taliban flag over the U.S. embassy and shoot their Kalashnikovs and and M-16s now into the air celebrating their defeat of, of the United States, that this won't have an emboldening effect on some new Osama bin Laden, It's just bizarre to me, you know, and yet it like to say that now is like, oh, we heard that last time. Yeah, because it was true. You know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh,
1: it's 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 like inexplicable. Again, um, I don't think that international terrorism is the most pressing threat anymore. It doesn't mean it's not a threat. Um, I agree. China competition with China is really the one thing I, I don't, I don't Maybe we can lead on a, uh, this is a slightly optimistic note, and I, but I am not trying to be pangloss here. I'm, I'm just trying to say that it's, keep in mind, our adversaries have their own problems, which is to say that, yes, the Chinese are on the march. Yes, uh, Xi is an authoritarian who has consolidated power, but uh, they blundered very badly with their COVID diplomacy there still is, I think, a lot of countries are not going to trust the Chinese because of how they, at the very least, have uh, obstructed investigations into the origin of COVID and have failed to deliver on their promises for a vaccine. Our vaccine is, our, the West vaccine in general are much better. Um, th- and also, you know, it's, I don't, there's there's all kinds of things that we can't see in authoritarian and totalitarian systems that are happening beneath the surface, and the the notion that we they haven't kind of heard from this that kind of um, miraculously like the China kind of created a middle class in like 20 years, um, uh, you know at some point I would imagine that there will be some some friction there as well, um, so it's just you know. And, and China's uh, overall diplomatic, uh, embo- they're so emboldened right now in how they're conducting their, their foreign relations that they are making a lot of enemies nonetheless. So it's not like totally hopeless, but you are to- you're absolutely right that Biden's surrender here uh, will make that great power competition uh, more perilous and more challenging.
0: It says something that this was your attempt to end on a note of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, and can sort of make a similar argument about Russia and how corrupt it is and, you know, how, you know, more than I, mean, that I don't worry about Russia. As, yeah.
0: Russia's not a serious adversary. It's a, it's a serious pain in the ass. I mean, there's a, there's a difference. And I mean, if they didn't have nuclear weapons, I wouldn't really worry about Russia at all because I, I think it's a dysfunctional country. But, and I agree with you entirely, you know, China, I mean, this is one of the, back from the old days with the arguments during the war on terror stuff is when people used to say, you know, you're doing exactly what Al Qaeda wants, right. You know, whatever the, you know, engaging them wherever and all that kind of stuff was like, yeah, you you do know that sometimes the thing you want is a bad idea. And that like, right. You know, the (laughs) phrase careful, what you careful, what you wish for is, is, is a phrase for a reason. And like. Simply because they have misgu- misjudged their own strategic interests doesn't mean we should take them on the word that they're brilliant and know exactly, you know, you know, sometimes going into the briar patch is good policy, you know? And so I agree with you. I think China's still got huge structural problems. I think that they're more, they're almost as afraid of their own people as, as the people are of the communist party. And that the, the, the dislocations and dysfunctions of of the one child policy are still working themselves. I mean, there's all sorts of things. They got their own problems at the same time, I don't want to go to war with China over Taiwan. I don't want to have to like face that problem. And, um, China can misjudge its interests as well as anybody else can. I mean, and, um, and in fact, the fact that they are a closed system, which makes all that epistemic stuff more likely to be a problem, uh, means that they very easily could misjudge their interests and start and blunder into something that, you know, Drags us in and causes math. I mean, I was taught we were talking about this on the podcast the other day about all this deficit spending and this massive debt, and will there be in spending and will there be inflation and all this kind of stuff. And it's like my basic answer is I don't know, but there could very well be some sort of exogenous event that has nothing to do with the math of the velocity of money and inflation stuff. It could simply be all of a sudden we don't. Well, first of all all of a sudden we do something like we just did in Afghanistan and that leads to doing something stupid on Taiwan. And all of a sudden the world no longer has faith that we've got our act together. And then like the value of our currency goes off the rails and who knows. And like the economic problems that we have don't necessarily need to be tied to economics. They can be tied to the psych larger political psychology of the country or the world. And, and this is an argument just for being slow and steady and careful about stuff rather than like following some narrative into a disaster like we just saw. Anyway,
1: one more note. Thank you for coming on. Okay. And one more note of optimism that we can learn from our center right, uh, you know, ancestors, which is that the world looked pretty awful in 1979. It, I could understand why somebody would look at the 1970s and say, I don't know how many years the American, you know, hegemon has left. And within a few short years, uh, you know, I, 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 I credit the U.S. Olympic hockey team and Ronald Reagan, their mood of the country changed and the sense of possibility kind of returned and a dynamism returned that, um, you know, was a renewal of sorts. Uh, I feel that Biden's presidency, we're, in, we're stuck in the mire of the 70s right now, but we don't know. Hopefully there will be a leader Uh, or other kinds of things that can kind of, you know, rejuvenate uh, this great American experiment.
0: From your lips, Eli. Yeah, let's know. Um, All right, Eli Lake, thank you so much for being on. Uh, People should check out your contribution to the symposium with Barry Weiss. They should check out your piece uh, in tablet. We'll put all that in the show notes. Um, I should also note that while we're recording this, word came out that Biden is coming back to the White House today so maybe he'll say something that renders this entire conversation moot um, and uh, and overwrought, and I would be delighted if that turned out to be the case, but I, I somewhat doubt it. Me too. Um, all right, so thanks again for coming on, and we'll have you back soon.
1: Thank you, Jonah.
0: Okay, so uh, Eli Lake has left, and um, I'm glad to have had him on. Uh, we kept talking for a good long while after the podcast stopped because we had more grievances to air Um and uh I really I can't, you know, I can't emphasize enough how dismaying and 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 raging this last week has been. Um and uh I don't have, you know, I mean I i appreciated Eli's attempt to um put a rosy uh scenario on all this. And I think he's right in the sense that one of the great things about America is that we do have a capacity for renewal and self-correction that a lot of uh, countries don't, including some democracies, but definitely compared to places like China. China's a lot like marble. It's very strong, but it's also very brittle. And America has flex to it. And, you know, as David French would often point out, one of the, the, you know, part of the meaning of remnant is to say something that's left over, but also it's the thing that you use to rebuild on. And so maybe the response to all of this will help a certain amount of sanity take root and regrow. And the uh, and maybe Eli's right, that we're in a sort of 1970s kind of time and on the cusp of something better coming down the pike. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that things aren't nearly as bad as I think they will be in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future. Um, but it's all, it's all very, very depressing because it was not necessary Um, and, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm recording this on Monday. I won't be recording tomorrow. I haven't figured out about Thursday. I'm leaving town tomorrow. Take my daughter to school. Um, we will have someone either sub for me or I will do something from the West coast. Uh, just, we haven't figured all that out. So stay tuned and, um, thanks to everybody for their, um, kind words and even, uh, some of, the, some of the constructive criticisms about the Friday G file, which you can still find up at the dispatch. And um, thanks again to Eli Lake and I will see you guys next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.